This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 30th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, I talk with news intern Kathleen O'Grady about mini-publics. This is a new strategy for figuring out tough policy problems in democracies. I also talk with researcher Samadhi Galpayage about her contribution to a series of essays on landmark papers published in Science. She profiles Charles Turner, a long-overlooked black zoologist whose thinking on animal cognition was way ahead of its time. And Books host Kiki Sanford chats with author Pia Sorensen about her book, Science and Cooking, Physics Meets Food, From Homemade to Home Cuisine. Now we have news intern Kathleen O'Grady. She's here to talk about mini-publics, a strategy for democracies to figure out tough policy problems. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. These are sometimes called mini-publics, citizen juries, deliberative democracy. What exactly are we talking about here? We're talking about bodies made up of randomly selected citizens Mm -hmm. who deliberate in very controlled conditions, answering often very constrained questions, and who at the end of the process produce a set of recommendations. There are different kinds of bodies. They're really big ones that take a long time. They're really small ones that just meet for a weekend. But the crucial ingredient really is that the citizens are randomly selected rather than self-selected. What need are these deliberative bodies filling? The point that a lot of people indicate as a real sea change recently was in Ireland after the financial crisis when there was a catastrophic collapse of trust in government. And one of the responses to this was a promise to institute a citizen's body that would deliberate on various crucial questions in Ireland at the time and produce recommendations. And there have been a couple in Ireland now, and they've been an incredible success. Quite a few people point to the success in Ireland as an indication that these bodies are very useful in the political moment that we find ourselves in, where there's incredible polarization, there's lots of trust in government. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really the, the need that they're trying to deal with. When I hear about small groups deliberating big policy questions, I want to know a few important things. How are the members chosen? Who picks basically the curriculum that they're subjected to? And what happens with the results? Can you walk us through some examples? Sure. So I'll use the UK Climate Assembly because that's the example that I know best. 30,000 letters were sent out 
to randomly chosen postcodes and people were invited to RSVP saying whether they could make it to Birmingham for the weekends that had been selected for the assembly. And about 1,700 people responded saying that they could make it. We start out with random selection and then there is an unavoidable layer of self-selection. Right, yeah. You know, strong arm people into being in a room that they don't want to be in. And then random selection comes in again where there's an algorithm that takes these people who have responded positively and it strips that down to the core group of just 110 people Mm -hmm. who are stratified to reflect the UK-wide population on a number of different characteristics. So now that you have your body, how do you choose what to have them talk about, listen to? In this case, there were so many different bodies involved. UK Parliament commissioned the assembly and then they put the question of who was going to run the assembly out to competitive tender and a charity won the contract to run it. And then the charity instituted a panel of experts who selected speakers, but then their selection was put to another panel. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first round of deliberation, really, on who should be providing evidence. Now you have your people and your curriculum The first thing that happened here was that they listened to academics explaining just the very basics. What is the greenhouse effect? What are the consequences of climate change? After they've kind of got the basics in place, they hear on specific topics from experts and interest groups whose opinions are clearly labeled as opinions. Mm. The assembly was divided then into three different tracks. So one track was looking at transport, for instance, and another track was looking at heating and home energy. And within those tracks, they split into small groups where they would deliberate on questions that they wanted to ask, policies that they wanted to introduce. There were some kind of template policies that they were given to vote on, but they could also request changes to the policies that were suggested to them. And then at the end of that, they had a blind voting process. One of the big concerns that we have right now with politics is how polarized people are. How do they keep that out of this and make it like a calm space for making decisions? One of the best descriptions of it that I've heard is it's like couples counseling for democracy. What happens is that within these small group settings, there are very strict rules for civility. Only one person speaking at a time, being polite and calm at all times, giving other people space to air their views, even if they disagree with them, backing up your opinions with reasons and facts. And there's a great deal of space made, for instance, in asking questions of the experts, where people who are not comfortable standing up and asking their question in front of a room of 100 people can write down their question and have it asked for them. Each table has its own facilitator guiding participants through the civility rules. And at the end of it, you have these comments from the participants about how much they felt that their voices were heard, how much they felt that they were respected. It's really kind of Difficult to imagine when you're spending time in the political climate that we're all spending time in, but it does seem to work. Yeah. Reading some of the descriptions of the way people felt about participating and about all getting on board and kind of this magic of hearing facts and forming logical conclusions from them and being satisfied with how things went. Basically, it's like summer camp plus data and politics, and it's somehow uplifting. That's a great description. I think that works really well. The other comparison that kept coming to mind for me was the Great British Baking Show. So they go every weekend. It's this diverse population that's really representative of the country. And they go into the situation where the norms dictate kindness, camaraderie, helpfulness, and they produce something beautiful. And in this case, it's climate policy rather than cake. What happened with the results? What happened with the policy decisions, recommendations that they made? 
Some of them were quite creative. One that I particularly loved that an assembly member suggested was the idea that the government should be producing information on our success at climate policy, the way they're producing information on our COVID stats, a website that you can go to and see what our emissions look like and how that compares to 1990 and what's happening to bring them down. There were also suggestions to have carbon footprint labeling on food and a very high level of support for bringing public transit back into public ownership Mm. in the UK, where it's largely privatized Mm. and where this has been kind of a political football for a while. So in many cases, the policies themselves are not necessarily that astonishing, but it's a gauge of the trade-offs that members of the public are prepared to make, what people are prepared to do to achieve those policies, and what level of support there is among a very informed subset of the public that's really particularly interesting. How binding are these policy decisions that this group made? Not at all. Parliamentarians will use them to introduce debates in Parliament. They'll be used by the parliamentary committees that scrutinize the legislation that government is presenting. But there is no commitment that Mm -hmm. these policies will actually be instituted. And that's different than what happened in France, where they had an assembly make a bunch of recommendations and those were taken on board right away. That was a different situation. Macron's government actually instituted the assembly and he committed at the outset to taking the recommendations seriously. They weren't even then absolutely binding. Mm -hmm. And he's committed to instituting 146 of the 149 recommendations. Obviously, we've yet to see exactly Mm -hmm. how that will play out. I want to circle back to what kind of need this is fulfilling. And I think we didn't touch on this before, but There is this mismatch between what it's seen as tolerable to the public, the trade-offs they're willing to make, and what, Mm -hmm. you know, what politicians are willing to risk because their careers are on the line whenever they participate in new legislation, making rules, things like that. One of my sources, Rebecca Willis, said this best. She said that voting is a really blunt instrument Mm -hmm. and that when citizens go to the ballot box, and they try to vote a politician out of office, they might be expressing their dissatisfaction with that person's climate policy, perhaps a tax that they've introduced. They might be complaining about them not going far enough. And politicians underestimate the support for climate change and they overestimate the opposition to certain policies. So another example from the source, Rebecca Willis, onshore wind farms, there's an assumption among politicians that those are going to be despised, but actually there's quite a high level of public support for them. Politicians have these short-term incentives. They're worried about what's going to happen at the next election, whereas climate change requires long-term thinking and long-term solutions. And there's this real disjunct there. I noticed a lot of what you covered in your story was the use of these mini publics for discussions of climate change. And, you know, it's kind of a good example of taking a complex topic with lots of evidence that needs to be considered getting it to the public and helping them deliberate about it. But this can be used for other issues besides dense scientific topics, right? Yes. To go back to the example in Ireland, one of the major things that the body deliberated on was the question of whether abortion should be legalized. And they recommended that this be put to referendum in Ireland, then passed the referendum. And abortion is now legalized in Ireland. What do we know about how this works? Why is this different than giving people a poll and asking them questions or working with the outcome of the political process. How is this different? Why does this give us better results, better deliberation? The major difference from a poll is that, you know, I don't know all that much about fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. I'm an informed citizen. I like listening to the news. I like reading analysis. But if you were to sit me down and grill me on what I think exactly the government should be doing, I don't know very much. And very few citizens have the leisure to become truly properly informed on questions of 
the intricacies of policy. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you have introduced deliberation is that the people who are selected, at least, have this opportunity to really take their time getting to know the issue inside and out. And you can see this in James Fishkin's deliberative polls, where people's opinions change from when they're first polled based on their general knowledge of the issue. And then they go through this deliberative process. And at the end of it, there's an opinion shift where people really have changed what they think and believe and, and recommend on the basis of this information. So that's a major difference between just a poll and the outcome of a deliberative process. So research has shown that this actually works to get people informed and can shift opinion based on facts. Yes, it has. Amazing. In the right context. I think a crucial thing to address here is the question of how the bodies are designed. Right. This gets at some of the objections that you found in your reporting. People saying, let's not just outsource all governance to small groups. Christina Lafont is a political philosopher, and she is concerned about the idea of what she calls lotocratic hmm. bodies. If we start thinking that our government should be made up of citizens who are randomly selected rather than elected, she thinks that that really challenges the idea that those bodies would be democratic. They wouldn't be given consent to govern in the same way that an elected politician is given consent to govern. And she's also concerned that deliberation really should be a process that's happening throughout the citizenry. And it does seem like there'd be a way to game the system if you set up how people were selected, what information they were presented, you could skew the outcomes to your own agenda. I think there really is a danger of bodies being set up in a way that's intended to produce a particular outcome that the people setting it up are gunning for. There have been critiques of many of the assemblies that have been set up. So Extinction Rebellion, the climate activism group, has been calling for a climate assembly in the UK, but they were critical of the assembly that was actually set up because they say it is completely ignored by government, at least to this point. Mm -hmm. They were concerned that the assembly was set up to deliberate on how to reach net zero by 2050 and that this is nowhere near ambitious enough and the participants weren't given scope to challenge that premise. When researchers look into this as a method of policymaking, of deliberation, when it comes to people making decisions, is this being used? Is it being implemented when a mini public makes a recommendation? This is an incredibly difficult question to answer. It's very difficult to say where policy originated. There is a small amount of work trying to answer this question. So researchers at the OECD have taken these 55 mini-publics and tried to establish how many of their recommendations were ultimately implemented. They found that three quarters of the time, more than half of their suggestions were eventually implemented. And only in six cases out of these 55 were none of them implemented at all. But it's difficult to draw a direct line of causation there. You know, was the mini public the reason the policy was implemented? All we can say is that they were. And that's only the mini publics for which there is data available. I would really like to be on one of these. Would you really like to be on one of these groups? <laughs> I want to be on one of these groups so badly. The Scottish Citizens Assembly has sent out invitations and I didn't receive one and I'm uh -huh. devastated. That's probably an indication that I shouldn't be on one. Right. Yeah. Because the whole point is that the random selection cuts out this problem of people who are self-selecting, people who have a very strong interest in the subject. And while the UK Assembly did include some people who are extremely concerned about climate change, the idea is that they're trying to get at what the average person thinks when mm. they're put in a situation where they have the time and the luxury to inform themselves. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you.
Kathleen O'Grady is a news intern for science. You can find a link to her feature story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Samadhi Galpayage about the important and often forgotten works of a black zoologist born just two years after the abolition of slavery in the United States. This, before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. week, we're featuring a piece from a new series on landmark science papers. We're going to talk about Charles Turner, a Black zoologist from the U.S. who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He's published multiple times in science. He studied animal cognition, but despite his very much ahead of the time thinking, his work was largely overlooked, due in a large part to the many difficulties facing an African-American man who wanted to participate in academia at this time. One of the writers of the Insight piece, Haruni Samadhi Galpayage-Dona, is here to talk about Turner and why it's a good time to do so. Hi, Samadhi. Hi, Sarah. Let's start with your connection to Charles Turner. When I read your bio at the end of the segment, it's going to say something like, Samadhi is a PhD student in the Bee Sensory and Behavioral Ecology Lab. And from what I've read, Turner did some interesting work on bees. How does this connect with what you do now? In my work, we look at how bees learn and solve problems. And I want to see if bees are more than little reflex machines. We want to see their behavioral flexibility, individual differences, and uh, how far a tiny brain can go, really. And just because they're physically small doesn't mean they're not intelligent. This is something that Turner definitely recognized over 100 years ago. He describes insects being able to find solutions using some sort of insight. In terms of the bee work that Turner did, he did some work on bee color vision. And then he also did experiments on whether bees distinguish between patterns. This is also something mm. we do in our lab. And actually for my master's project, I looked at differences between short-term memory and long-term memory in bees based on visual cues. So they had to learn a pattern with specific colors and a specific orientation. In a broad sense, Turner was in a completely different place than other people in the field. Can you talk a little bit about the contrast between what he was doing, what he was thinking about, and what, what the status quo was? During Turner's time, maybe just before, you had Charles Darwin and George Romains who were quite generous in attributing intelligence to animals. 
but their observations were quite anthropomorphic and not really backed up by experiments. And on the other hand, during Turner's time, the school of thought on animal behavior was pretty much the opposite approach to only test animals on vigorously controlled lab environments and mostly to study instinctive behaviors and simple forms of learning. Even in a problem-solving task, it was thought that animals accidentally happened to solve the task through trial and error, and there was no insight whatsoever on the animal's part. What animals did was pretty much a simple response to environmental stimuli. But what Turner did was to use the best of both worlds, really. He believed that both field observations and lab work were extremely important. You can actually see in one of his science papers where he describes a lizard climbing a tree after being chased by a snake. And at one point, the lizard stops and looks down, probably looking whether the snake is still following it. Yeah. But by then, the snake had climbed the tree next to the one with the lizard on it and passed on the lizard the moment it was off guard. <laughs> and so Turner says that the snake must have had some sort of understanding that this detouring behavior would enable it to catch its prey, to improve the chances. But at the same time, he was also cautious about this observation being just a field observation and that experimental work would also be important. He also looked at individual variation in behavior. Even today, this is something that people have difficulty studying. We think that Turner was actually one of the first people to draw something like a, an individual learning curve that shows the performance over time of individuals rather than at group level. For example, there's a paper called Behaviour of the Common Roach on an Open Maze from 1913. And I really think that the name of the paper doesn't do it justice because the content is far more interesting. <laughs> so often the case. <laughs> yeah. So in this paper, he identifies what we would call personalities today in the cockroaches. Some individuals were very quick to solve the maze, but made more mistakes. And others who were moving slowly, being really careful not to make a mistake, because the mistake would have been falling off the maze and falling into water. He was basically observing individuals making speed accuracy trade-offs. He highlights that the cockroach's behavior actually changed with experience as well. So he speaks both of differences between individuals and within individuals. Just to touch on a couple more things that Turner did in his scientific career. This one really struck me. He figured out that insects can hear and distinguish pitch. Yes. Yeah, so at the time, it wasn't known whether insects could hear. In his experiments trying to find this out, he makes uh, moths hear noises and the moths don't react until the sound is spared with the shaking of the moth. And because this shaking is unpleasant, eventually the moth does associate the sound with the shaking. Oh. And that's how Turner figures out that, okay, as long as the sound, so the vibrations, is paired with something that is relevant to the moth, mm -hmm. then the moth will respond. And so this is how he showed that insects could hear or feel vibrations. Can you talk a little bit about the trajectory of his career, how he ended up publishing so much, even though he wasn't able to join academia at that level? 
Turner published over 70 papers, three of them being in science. And actually, I think two were out by the time he was 25. So he was clearly talented and hardworking. His contemporaries did know of his work, but Turner was born just two years after the abolition of slavery in the US. So he lived in a time where a black person would have faced a lot of discrimination due to the color of his skin. It was a time when schools were segregated, when African-Americans were referred to as Negro. And I say the word because the text we went through when researching for this article had those words. This was the reality of the time. Turner actually almost got a position at a major research-led university, but the head professor did not want quoting Negro at his faculty. Turner then became a high school teacher in a school for Blacks only. He still published many papers, even though he didn't have access to state-of-the-art facilities or even a team to work with. One paper that I really like is a description of a wasp walking, trying to carry its prey, which is a spider, and try to overcome these obstacles. This observation was actually done in the schoolyard, the school where he worked. So I think even while he was teaching full-time and working really hard to provide a good education for Black students, he still carried on doing his research and publishing. Not only that, he was also very active in the civil rights movement. While he was a teacher at St. Louis, him and his students would have witnessed the East St. Louis riots where about 200 Black people were killed and thousands more lost their homes to arson attacks. And Turner wrote about prejudice and discrimination and believed that education of both Black and white was key to overcome prejudice and ethnic barriers in society. It does make you wonder how much he could have achieved if he did have the support of a university, of a lab, of staff during that time. If we did have the opportunity to train more scientists, perhaps they would have expanded and carried on his ideas. And maybe we would know of his work a lot more today. People having to reinvent the animal cognition wheel because his achievements weren't popularized. They weren't recognized. Yes. So one example of this is how we learn about how insects use spatial cues to navigate. Most of us think that it was Tim Bergen who made this discovery, but actually Turner had published a similar paper 25 years before where he uses a Coca-Cola cap, which I think is a really cool touch to the experiment. So you see, even if he didn't have the -the state-of-the-art labs, he's managed to do his research somehow. So first he places it, this Coca-Cola cap, next to the burrow of a solitary borrowing bee. And then he moves the Coca-Cola cap to a different location and he makes a new burrow. The bee doesn't go back to its original burrow, but it goes to the new location where the Coca-Cola cap is. And so Turner shows that in contrast to what was thought at the time, that animals would go back home using maybe scent cues, the bee was clearly using some sort of landmark. And so there is some memory involved as well. Why do you think it's important to talk about this now? Why is it a good time to talk about Turner, to talk about the effects of racism on the endurance of his work, those kinds of things? Well, first, I'd like to say 
why not now? If there's, <laughs> if there's a problem, we better start finding solutions now, right? Regarding the article, here's what happened leading up to writing it. As you know, George Floyd was killed by the police in the summer. As you also know, there were protests to combat the cause of that man's death, which was racism. Mm -hmm. And these protests didn't stay in America. They spread around the world. And seeing everyone come together gave me some hope that things could change. I finally felt like this is not a problem for only the people that experience racism. It felt like I could speak up about these matters. And I think the protests were not just about stopping people from acting directly racist, but also about highlighting that not being racist is not enough. One has the responsibility to be anti-racist, to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to speak to my PhD supervisor, who's Lars Chitka, and we wrote this article together about Turner, actually. So at first, I really didn't know what to do. And I was just trying to reach as many people as I could to raise awareness and to overcome these feelings myself. I had this image in my head that the world was on fire and I was in my little bubble reading about bees and flowers. So I felt like I had to do something. I know that as scientists, maybe it's quite easy to be too busy maybe to get emotionally involved with certain causes, especially if you think it doesn't affect you personally. But I think that in the end, we don't only do science for our own pleasure, but also to give back and leave something behind for society and for humanity. So I guess I just wanted to encourage others in these times, you know, where there was a problem at our doorsteps to take some time and learn a bit more about these issues and particularly maybe pay attention to what's going on in science, to think about diversity and inclusivity, to think of solutions. And so I think it's more important than ever that we celebrate the work of ethnic minorities or people like Turner, who most of us haven't heard of, maybe at school or even in our undergraduate lectures. We rarely see a professor or a researcher or someone, a famous scientist of colour. And so I think it's important that we ask why. We need to find out why. and we probably should do something about it. One thing we hear at science, I think, um, but we do hear scientists should stick to science. This is politics. We should not be doing politics. And I don't, I don't see it that way because science is done by people. And so we need to make sure that all people are involved in science. Yes, I definitely agree. <laughs> I think as scientists, we love our work. It becomes our life, but we also would like to feel like we belong where we work. We belong to the community, which does what we love to do. Myself, when I was maybe five or six, I remember sitting in the schoolyard and thinking, oh, I'd like to be a teacher one day. But I immediately thought, maybe I can't because I've only ever seen white teachers. But most of all, because I had experienced racism, because other children would call me names, I felt that. If I became a teacher, my pupils wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't respect me. Thinking back, I don't know how I had this thought process, but... But you remember it. I remember it. And I feel like it, it was very powerful. What do young people or anyone who is also Black or from an 
ethnic minority feel like? What happens to that budding scientist that sees this? There are people who do feel uncomfortable to do field work, and it really shouldn't be like this. The world of science is not insulated from all of these things that you're talking about. Yeah. At the university level, there's this feeling that you don't belong there. I think it can be very difficult for you to be happy in your environment and keep that motivation. So going back to the, the point of this is just politics, it's not. At the end of the day, we are human beings and we want to have that feeling of belonging and feel that motivation and feel that, I guess, empowerment to be able to do what you love. Thank you so much, Samadhi. Thank you, Sarah. Samadhi Galpayage is a PhD student at Queen Mary University in London. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for Kiki Sanford and Pia Sorensen. They're going to be talking about the book Science and Cooking, Physics Meets Food from Homemade to Haute Cuisine. Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford. The following interview might make you hungry. Science and Cooking, Physics Meets Food from Homemade to Haute Cuisine by Michael Brenner, Pia Sorensen, and David Weitz takes the content of their Harvard University course for undergraduates out of the classroom and into your kitchen. Pia Sorensen joined me for an appetizing discussion. First, this was a course, and then you tied it to a public event, both of which involve famous chefs and their perspectives. What made you decide to turn it into a book? We found that there is a lot of excitement around this, and people love to think about food. They are curious about their food. They want to know more about why things work and why things don't work and how can they make them work. And the book really came out of that, thinking that there are people out there who want to know and can we capture the spirit of these public lectures and put it in book form and have other people enjoy it around the world? Who are the people you think will really appreciate this book and what do you hope that they get out of it? I think this would be a great book for people who like food, who are curious about their food, for people who like fancy food and are curious about how fancy chefs think about fancy food. I think it would be cool for scientists, not in terms of necessarily understanding the nitty gritty little thing going on at every level, but in terms of a um, entertaining read that also contains these hands-on components. I could see teachers finding a lot of good examples in the books to teach with. And I think young bakers and chefs would also find it approachable. It, it, is, it is science, but it, we've tried our best to make it accessible. And there are lots of pictures. <laughs> You're a chemist by training. How did you go from chemistry to food? I think I've always loved food. But really, I think my interest in food has been as it connects to the natural world, but also how it connects to the hands-on experience. And really, as a scientist, when we often find ourselves in a position of trying to explain concepts, trying to understand concepts, we're sort of grasping for good ways to do that. And food has become a way that really works for that. In my education and in my PhD, I studied the 
the molecular basis of the natural world, broadly speaking. I, I did cancer research, small molecule, natural products. And now I feel like I do the same in the context of food. And what really brought me to it was was the fact that it is such a fantastic teaching tool, that it lights people up and talking about it makes people want to know about it. So as a teacher, it really drew me in as, as a really, really powerful tool. How does that translate into teaching about the molecules in food? In the very starting weeks of teaching this class, we talk about the main food molecules, right? Proteins, carbohydrates, fats, and water. And then we kind of ask this question, well, what else is there? Of course, the answer is flavor. And flavor molecules are all small, volatile molecules that attach to our taste receptors and our olfactory receptors. And they are produced by large molecules being broken down. And that happens when we heat things. It happens when we add those molecules in, in the context of adding spices to our food, which contain small molecules that give flavor to food. And when we think of it in the context of food fermentations, which are so popular these days with everyone being home making sourdough bread, they are small molecules that are being made by microbes. So all of them are really small molecules that are really enhancing our food. And by understanding where they come from and what they do to us, we're already touching on so much chemistry and biology and, and even physics. Throughout the book, there are multiple different recipes to give examples of the processes that you explain in the book. What is your favorite recipe? I, I, okay, I have two answers to that. I think one of my favorite recipes, and I think one of many people's favorite recipes who've been either involved in the class or involved in other ways, is the molten chocolate cake recipe. This is the idea that heat transfers into food but by understanding how quickly it does so, we have to leave a molten center. And that is what makes it a molten chocolate cake. Without it, it's just a cake. And it's perfectly connected to the idea of heat transfer and the laws that govern how heat moves into food. So I would say that. But I, I have an additional recipe, which I would say is sauerkraut. Because sauerkraut is so simple. It has such few ingredients. It's just cabbage, salt, and then it's time. You wait and then you are transforming the food and you don't really have to do much. You're not doing much at all. And it is something that is pretty foolproof. It usually works. And it's also something that many people haven't actually done. So I really like that one. Speaking of sauerkraut, that transformation happens because of fermentation, which people might be afraid of trying because it involves microbes. What makes it work as a safe and effective culinary tool? You should be aware of the fact that just because it's dealing with microbes, it's not as scary as it seems. The very idea of fermentation builds on this idea that, first of all, there are microbes everywhere, everywhere around us, and they're also on raw food ingredients. And the whole idea of fermentation builds on the fact that there are some microbes that are able to utilize a food source be it cabbage or milk or grains or whatever it is, slightly better than, than other microbes are under certain conditions. So if you add a little salt to your sauerkraut and you press it down so you get rid of the oxygen, then you have an environment that is good for certain microbes. And then they will do the job of creating small amounts of molecules that are going to suppress the growth of many other 
microbes. And some of those microbes are the ones that would normally spoil the food. So the very idea of fermentation and the reason it works and the reason it's worked for millennia is that there are these microbes that will preserve the food for you. There are certainly some food fermentations that can seem a little scary, but there are also a few of them that are so dried that they tend to work. Sauerkraut is one of them. Mead is another one. Baking bread. When you're baking bread, you're basically fermenting. The chapter headings all seem to be very basic chemistry concepts. Heat, charge, pH. Are these concepts that every home cook should understand? Yeah, I think they are. I think they really capture some of the basic concepts that helps explain a huge variety of foods. I think that this is really boiled down to a lot of the basic concepts. What I think would be a surprise to at least some readers is that even with very different foods, so take steak and fried ice cream or steak and ceviche, you know, the the raw fish that's been infused with, with lemon juice. And you would think that they're completely different foods and how could they have anything in common? But the unifying science theme is really the same for all of those three foods. And by understanding that and by keeping it in mind, I really think that the home cook, or let's say the home scientist, as it were, who who is exploring science through food, can have some guiding principles of how to solve questions in their kitchen. What are some key components from the various chapters that could potentially help a home cook like me become a better baker? I love baking because it combines the science from so many chapters. Of course, the first thing you have is the mixing the ingredients and making sure you have the right ratios of of whatever you're putting into the bread. That involves also having the right ratio of water and the right amount of hydration for the starch to 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 swell. So so there's the whole concept of what goes on on a molecular level in that sense. Then you are doing a fermentation because you're probably leavening your bread in some way. And let's say you're not doing it with yeast, maybe you're just using baking soda. Well, then there's a chemical reaction of that. Then you you cook it and there's the idea of heat transfer, which is also a chapter in the book. And um, in the end, you're hoping to have a bread that has the exact perfect mouthfeel, which are the scientific ideas of elastic modulus and in terms of the dough, the viscosity, and this is connected to, to mouthfeel. By understanding them, you could then manipulate the dough and you could, you could run the experiments, right? That's what's so great about this, that by doing this in your kitchen, you're kind of the scientist and you get to ask the questions and you get to design the experiments to find out what happens and what doesn't happen. And at the end of the day, you can decide if it was successful or not. Bread banking has become a major pastime during the past year. San Francisco is known for its sourdough, and people say that you only get that flavor in San Francisco. Can you talk about how microbes affect the flavor and how they affect fermentation? Of course, that's a great example, the lactobacillus san franciscensis, which it is the microbe that is creating that very, very sour tang of San Francisco sourdough. But it has also been found in, in bakeries and in many other places. So it is, it is not specific to that location. But yeah, small, small variations like that will have an effect on the flavor. 
And also the environmental conditions will help select for certain microbial communities and that can affect the flavor. And sometimes that's on a level where maybe you, you and I wouldn't notice, right? It's not enough for our taste buds to pick up on it, but sometimes it, it really is. And sometimes you can really get, get a difference. You've got some big name chefs involved in your course, like Dave Arnold, who started the Museum of Food and Drink and who owns Booker and Dax. What does he demonstrate and what is it like working with him? Dave Arnold does a lot of demos and every year he shows sous vide eggs. So these are eggs that are cooked at very specific temperatures. And if you cook them even within a small range, you will see a difference in how much the proteins have denatured. Um, So if you have an egg at 62 degrees, it will look different from an egg at 63 degrees. This is something that we struggle with every year, because if you have not calibrated your water bath, then your eggs will be off just slightly by even just a third of a degree or half a degree. And then when Dave Arnold shows up and cracks the eggs, and Dave Arnold is friends with the eggs, he really puts them apart and he's like, this is not 62, this is 62 and a half. And this is something that we tell every year in in class that this is where temperature really is important. So often it doesn't matter, but when it comes to sous vide eggs and when Dave Arnold is in town, you really want to make sure you get your eggs just right. For yourself personally, how has the class and the book influenced how you think about food? The teaching of this material has definitely influenced how I think about food. And in fact, it's kind of taken over my, my career. This is now what I think about in terms of research and, and other related things. So, so yeah, it's influenced what I do in my kitchen, but also what I do in my job. More recently, I've played a lot with different food fermentations, which I highly recommend. But yes, it, it really, and I, and I think this is something with food. It draws people in and I'm not the only one that this has happened to, I think. And maybe it will happen to you. Thank you for joining me for this interview with Pia Sorensen about her book, Science and Cooking, Physics Meets Food from Homemade to Haute Cuisine. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again for a peek between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Kresge with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.